0: We thank you for your gift of the Spirit in our midst. We thank you that you have opened our hearts to behold the wonder and glory of Christ and that as we gaze at him, we are being transformed into his image. And yet, Father, we rejoice that we have a hope that one day we shall see him as he is and we shall be transformed fully into his likeness. And, Lord, we thank you for the immense grace you have in calling us to be your people, in being amongst us by your Spirit, and in teaching us from your Word. And we pray that we would have open minds and hearts, that we would understand what it is that you have to say to to us, and that you would give us courage and strength to live it out in our lives, that Jesus may be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Let's try that again. Good morning. My my body is so confused by weather right now. Um, It's a a lovely winter day, and I I understand that this is winter in South Africa. Uh, At home in Tennessee, where we were from, this would be just a nice autumn day, maybe a spring day. In Vancouver, we call this early morning in summer. So uh, we get up, and it's kind of nice and brisk outside like this, and it, it warms up a little bit during the day, but it only will get up sometimes to 15 or 16 in the summer, so that's uh, uh, my body's just completely confused, uh, but it's so, so lovely to be here with you, and I just want to say a word of encouragement uh, to you to, to see you giving the time, the, the expense of your time this week, and some of you are spending a good bit of money to travel here and to spend time here um, for this week. It's just such an encouragement because it shows your love for the Word of God, your seriousness about wanting to learn it, to, to embody it in your own life, in your ministries. And uh, just want to say, uh, well done, you know, in terms of you following the promptings of the Lord and the Spirit uh, in your life. And you've been a very, very good encouragement to me and Pat already this week to just, just see your intelligent questions, your um, your love for God's word, and and your keenness on on really trying to follow the Lord into life and ministry has just been been encouraging, and I mean that. I'm not just saying that. Um, I mean it's it's really been a wonderful thing to be with you so far. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to try to make it through another couple of chapters of uh, Second Corinthians, and I want us just to. Kind of think together this morning about where we are in the book. So, if you want to look back at the beginning of your handout, you have that um, that outline of the book of of Second uh, Corinthians there at the beginning of your handout. And uh, yesterday we covered a lot of ground in these first couple of chapters. So, if we can kind of think about it uh, together here, um, we saw that we had. This uh, first section, if you will, uh, if I go back a bit before we get into what we're going to deal with today, we had the first section, which was the opening and the kind of the prologue to the book. We saw Paul launch this letter in kind of the normal conventions that you would have of letter writing at that time. We saw that uh, this was an official letter that Paul was sending as an apostle to the church. And then he goes into this prologue of the book by drawing them into the presence of God with this blessing of God. And so, as I said yesterday, Paul is writing this difficult church at this difficult moment, and uh, yet he starts and launches this whole difficult letter, which really is a difficult letter in some ways, but he launches it with blessing God, with drawing them into this benediction of praising God as the compassionate Father, the Father who gives This radical kind of encouragement and and comfort, as we said yesterday, is taken up into that. But God comforts us or or encourages us uh, in every kind of situation that we could encounter. And then Paul goes and gives this terrible uh, tribulation that he had been caught in there in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And he describes a situation where he was completely taken away from any security in himself. He was reduced to the point of having to absolutely depend on the God who raises the dead. Um, and so, I said, as I said yesterday, we find different kinds of experiences in life and ministry. And one of the experiences that i found that I come around to or brought around to by the Lord is moments of reducing me in terms of my own confidence in, assurance in, security in myself and my abilities. Um, and that type of suffering that, that in, in some moments of life kind of reduces us and takes us away, uh, it's terribly painful, very uncomfortable for us to go through that. But it, it can be cyclically kind of a, um, a, a lovely way that, that the Lord takes us to deeper levels of dependence on Him. And then we come around and we find the encouragement of the Spirit of God and grace and the freedom in the Lord and all of that kind of thing often comes out of that. And I've and I found for me personally that kind of new ventures in ministry, uh, new levels of my intimacy with the Lord and walk with the Lord come around at times after deep times of bruising, deep times of, of challenge and difficulty as, as the Lord is growing us deeper. And so Paul talks about that in 1, 8 through 11. And then we saw in uh, 12 through 14, verses 12 through 14, you have kind of the thesis of the book because what Paul is doing there is he's saying, hey, I've been a person of integrity with you in my ministry. And that's going to be a theme throughout the book where he says, "Um, you should have been able to step up and commend me because I've just lived transparently before you as a minister of the gospel, have been living out uh, with sincerity this ministry that I've been doing. For you. And so then in uh, one, uh, our, yeah, chapter 1, verses 15 and following, we saw him begin to give explanations for why he had not come to them when he said that he would, and because evidently one of the main accusations going on from the opponents of Paul and these false teachers was that Paul was wishy-washy, you know, you couldn't depend on his word, and uh, as we saw yesterday, he's saying, no, I, I was, have been very consistent, but I'm also f- trying to follow the Lord as he leads me in life and ministry through the world. And so that's got to be taken into consideration as well. And so we, we saw him give these two explanations of why he did not come when he said he was, he said it wouldn't have been the best timing in terms of us going back into kind of a confrontation again. It wouldn't have been best for you spiritually if I came back right away. And then secondly, circumstances were such that Titus didn't come when I thought he was, and the Lord opened this door of ministry going north, and uh, I had to follow that. Now, that's where we got to yesterday uh, in terms of what's going on so far in the book. Now, we find ourselves at a really interesting moment in the book because he gives this bit about not finding Titus and needing to follow the Lord on up into Macedonia in this open door that has taken place, and then he pushes the pause button on that. And he's not going to come back around to this travel narrative, we could call it, until we get to the beginning of chapter 7. So what we now enter into in this part of 2 Corinthians is the great heart of the book, which is kind of his theology of what real Christian ministry is all about. Uh, what, is it, what does it look like to be authentic ministers of Jesus Christ? How can you look at different kinds of ministry and discern which are the ministries that are really ministries of the Spirit and ministries of the New Covenant, uh, as opposed to ministries that are just kind of empty, surface-level um, you know, effective in the sense of gathering a crowd, but not really being the essence of what real uh, Christian ministry is all about. How can you, how can you discern that? Um, and all of us in our cultural contexts deal with that question. Um, you can go to any part of the U.S. right now, and you will find churches that are filled. Uh, the numbers are there, the money is there, and they're just massive, and yet the gospel's not really being preached. Something else, another gospel, another good news is being preached. Really, Jesus and, and serious uh, taking seriously the theology of the New Testament is not what is center there at some of those churches. Um, and so you have The appearance of success and the name of Christ and all this associated with something that from, I think, from Paul's standards, you would say is not really what New Testament ministry is about. And so we have to kind of be discerning about all of that. Um, So what we're going to do today is we're going to move into this section where Paul commends his ministry as authentic And he's going to do this in a couple of different ways. We're going to find in chapter 2, verses 14 through the first part of 16, he uses actually an image from the broader Greco-Roman world. And we're going to talk about this image of triumph, a parade that the Romans would have when they had had a victory militarily. Um, And then in chapter 3, he's going to turn, especially related to the passage that Michael read a minute ago, he's going to turn to... Old Testament uh, theology of glory, specifically the glory on Moses' face. And he, he kind of uh, deals with this passage from Exodus 34 to talk about the distinction from the old covenant ministry that Moses had and new covenant ministry, which is a different kind of ministry, he says. So we're going to see those in chapter 3. Then he's going to come back around at the beginning of chapter 4, and he's going to again, give kind of a summary of some of the themes that he started out with in 2.14-16 on the nature of a ministry of integrity, a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of, of Christ's glory. So that's what we're going to get into. Uh, hold on to your hats this morning because it's, we're getting into some, some kind of wonderful, rich uh, theology that we're going to kind of need to unpack as we go along, but I hope it will make more sense as, as we go. So, are you guys ready for today? You doing all right? Everybody, with me? Uh, some a couple people ask if I slept well last night. I slept so well, and I'm uh, kind of still pulling out of it this morning. So, you're going to have to get me going um, as we as we move on together. So, let's move into this uh, this first part that we're going to look at here. Uh, we again. We're going to look at two uh, 14 through 4 six. Uh, we're going to move into this second part on the suffering, on the role of suffering as we uh, turn to four, seven and following. And then uh, we're going to move from there into uh, exhortations. But we're going to start this morning with this uh, part in chapter two and chapter three, kind of the end of chapter two and the begin and uh, the rest of, of chapter three. So we're going to take a look at this passage uh, in uh, 2,14. Through seventeen and if you can see that, okay, let me make sure that I didn't uh, click the button one too many times here. yeah, I did, so let me let me go back all right, sorry, okay, what I want us to do is I want us to read this. can you see it okay? can you see the screen all right uh, we're going to actually read this out loud together and uh, see if we can um kind of get our heads around what's going on in this passage. Would you read this out loud with me? And why don't you stand just for a second as we read God's Word together? And um, I don't know if you, if you have a, a practice of doing this, but at the end of the reading, I'm going to say, uh, this is the Word of the Lord, and you respond, thanks be to God. Okay, so let's, let's try to, to do that. Let's read it together. Yet... Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and makes known through us the aroma of knowledge about Him everywhere we go. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being destroyed. To some we are a stench arising from death and leading to death. To others an aroma arising from life and leading to life." And who is qualified for this role? For we are not like so many, hucksters who peddle the word of God to make money. Rather, we speak with integrity, indeed, as those sent by God, living before God and in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you very much. All right. You may be seated. At the center of the question of what's going on in this passage is... um, a term, it's a Greek term, and it's threonbuo is one way of pronouncing it here, and it's a a word that's only used a couple of times in the New Testament, but it's used dozens and dozens of times in the broader literature of the world at this time, the Greco-Roman literature, and uh, we're going to take a little bit more time with this passage because this is the foundational passage for Paul and the foundational image that he uses to launch this whole center section. So with your permission, I'm going to take a little bit more time to unpack this very rich passage uh, this morning in our first session. Uh, What this is referring to in the ancient world is a victory parade. Um, The Romans, when they won a massive battle, a really, really important battle against the Persians or against the Greeks... Um, the Roman general could come back to Rome, and often he would park his big army right outside of the city. Uh, I think there was probably a little bit of intimidation intended in that. And he would go to the Senate, and he would request that, he, that they give him this big, massive kind of celebratory parade in his honor. And of course, he was saying it was in honor of the gods uh, as well. But uh, that's what the parade was for. You can actually see an image like this in Rome today on the Arch of Titus. Uh, When the Roman general came back from destroying Jerusalem in AD 70, this arch was built, and he was given a parade. But you can see on the arch uh, itself, you have the menorah. This was taken from the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed. So uh, the parade just was... uh, involving all kinds of things, and probably there were people in Corinth at the time that Paul writes this passage who had coins from an earlier emperor who actually had arches built on a, a thing that he had done in Great Britain. And uh, he had a parade, and, and so there was kind of a commemoration of him. So they, the Corinthians probably even had coins in their pockets that had images that were related to triumphs. Uh, in a sense, and so the general would drive through the streets uh, in his chariot. He would be followed by wagons of different kinds of uh, goods, like they would have all the, the uh, armor and things from the opposing army, loot from the towns that were destroyed, and there would even be people walking along with big paintings of the battle scenes and the cities that were defeated. So you get the picture. This was a this was a massive uh, celebration. Now, when you look at the meaning of this word, people will give different understandings of it. That it means to lead in triumphal procession as a captive. Some of your translations uh, may say something like that. Uh, that uh, thanks be to God who leads us as a captive in Christ. Does anybody have that kind of translation? It has captive in the wording. Um, okay, nobody does here. Good. That's great because that's not what it means. Um, to lead in triumph for procession, just straightforwardly. How many of you have something like that? Kind of just straightforwardly to lead in triumph. Um, to cause to triumph is the older translation from the King James Version in Tyndale. The problem is there's no place in the ancient world where triambuo is used to mean to uh, cause to triumph. It never, ever means that. That was taken kind of as a conte- contextual interpretive translation. Uh, to triumph over, um, maybe, uh, but, but it is used, um, some suggest, even to expose to shame, and I'll exp- explain more about that in just a moment. Um, but, but really, the, the main way I've looked at most of the uses of this word in ancient literature, and, and again, there are dozens and dozens of them, and it really just means this second meaning here, to lead in triumphal procession, Uh, because it was used of a general conducting a parade and the different people that he has led in that parade. So, translations will run from, like, the NLT translation. He made us his captives, who always leads us his captives. We'll explain why they kind of bring that into the translation. Um, The ESV, which how many of you are using the ESV uh, this morning? Seems to be pretty popular here who uh, in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I think that's a very good translation. Uh, The message says God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Uh, The NET, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, um, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So you have a lot of different ways that this is kind of brought out here. But again, I think just the idea that... uh, we are being led in this triumphal procession or this victory parade by Christ is uh, a right understanding. Now, one of the things that was involved in this and has kind of influenced some interpretation of what's going on here is one clear aspect of the parade was the Roman general would take the defeated general and the officers and soldiers from the other side and they would be a part of the parade as well. They would chain them up, and they would lead them through the streets of Rome on this extensive, massive parade. And they would uh, use that as a display of the Roman general's power. And at times what they would do is they would take these captives and lead them in the parade up to the top of this hill where the uh, Temple of Jupiter was. And then they would actually be killed at that point, kind of sacrificed to the God in the parade, and so one of the interpretations of this passage has been that that the significance is Paul is saying that God leads us as captives, and He is leading us in triumphal procession as people who have been captive by Christ, even to the point of having lives where we're you know sacrificing our life and that kind of thing, and that has been kind of a key interpretation, especially in the last. 30 years, uh, based on the, a scholar named Scott Haferman, He did some work on this. Um, what makes sense of that? Now, I'm going I'm to disagree with this interpretation in just a minute, but let me just ask you, in, in what we see broadly in 2 Corinthians and in Paul, how would that at least fit with some of the emphases that we see in 2 Corinthians and Paul? Can anybody tell me? This idea that God leads us and as captives who are, anybody have an idea? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The theme of suffering we've already seen is going to be a big theme in 2 Corinthians. So it does kind of fit with that idea. And um, even in 1 Corinthians, you have this kind of idea of being led along, you know, through the world as people who are not in a good place, you know, so it would fit with that kind of idea. Um, but we're going to see that's not the only image that was taken uh, up here. So another thing that you find in this passage are these images of fragrance. Do you see that in the passage? Look at your translation again. But thanks be God, who always leads us in triumph procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of knowledge about Him in every place. So you. You have this image of a, of a victory parade. You have this image of, uh, of incense or fragrance. Because again, in the Roman triumphal procession parades, uh, they would, may have dozens and dozens of people going through the streets of Rome with incense burners. And they would be have burning this incense to the gods. So some descriptions of the Roman parade was, uh, some of those descriptions were saying that the, the streets of Rome were filled with smoke, the smoke of incense, as that incense was rising up to the gods. So you have this uh, fragrance of an aroma, and I'm not going to go into some of, some of the use of this language. Uh, Scott Haefemann and others have said that this is related to Old Testament imagery of the aroma of sacrifice but the problem is that in the Old Testament, it's a formula that's used, the fragrance of the aroma or something like that. Um, and it's, it's, when it's used of sacrifice, the, word is, the wording is very, very specific. But in all cases in ancient literature where these two words are used in the same context but kind of separate, they're not in that formula, they're just referring to good and bad smells. Uh, the osme word, this one on the, on the left-hand side, is a word that in the ancient world could be used of good smells, like the smell of flowers on, on plants or fruit on a tree. But it also could be used of bad smells, like the rotting of fish or dead bodies on a battlefield. Uh, it would be used of those kind of smells as well. The other term, Euodia, is a term that was used only in a positive way of of good fragrances, like we would think about perfume or something like that. And I don't want to get too bogged down here uh, in this, but just in every case in the ancient world, uh, this language, when there are two words that are are used in the same context but not in that Old Testament formula, they always mean um, good and bad smells in terms of the osme, and then fragrances in the terms of the other terms. So, how might Paul be using this imagery in his triumphal procession parade here? Well, um, I think he's using this imagery of incense. He's playing off of the Roman parade, and he's saying that uh, he, in essence, is like an incense, uh, one of the people carrying incense in the parade, that the gospel is like this incense that's wafting out over the world. And to some people, it smells great, and they respond positively, and to some people, it stinks. Uh, Because think about it, in that Roman parade, you have this incense being wafting up. How would the people of Rome themselves respond to the smell of that incense, the victory parade kind of incense? They would be thinking, man, this is great. The Persians are not gonna come and sack Rome and take us into slavery. They would be celebrating the victory, right? how would the captives in the parade who remembered their friends back on the battlefield who were killed, who were looking ahead to the temple of Jupiter up the hill and thinking, I may be about to get sacrificed here, the incense would stink to them because it would be the smell of defeat, the smell of death. Uh, The incense would, you know, in a metaphorical kind of sense, would would be a stench in their nostrils. They would hate it. They would hate it. So um, notice that Here's one description of the victory parade in the ancient world. Next came a lot of incense bearers, and after them the general himself on a chariot embellished with various designs, wearing a crown of gold and precious stones, etc. So you had these incense bearers in the parade. So Paul is depicting himself, I think, here as an incense bearer who is kind of standing between those for whom the smell is a smell of life and those for whom the smell of the gospel is a smell of death. All right. So um, I, I think he's seeing himself as a gospel bearer. But um, there's one other image that most people have not brought out that I found when I was doing my work on my commentary. Um, in the imagery of this Roman triumphal procession, who are those being saved? Those being destroyed in the imagery of the Roman parade would be whom? Who would be the ones in the imagery of the Roman parade, those being destroyed? would be the captives. Yeah, those who were on their way to to die, or at best, uh, they would be imprisoned and that kind of thing. But who are those being saved in the Roman imagery? Well, this is kind of a cool thing, because one thing that happened um, is when the Roman general uh, defeated that foreign nation, let's take the Greeks as an example. There was one case where this uh, general Flamininus had defeated the Greeks. And one of the things that happened when he defeated the Greeks and his armies came into the streets there in Greece is all of these people who had been Roman slaves there in Greece started coming out and meeting relatives and friends and brothers who were in the army. Do you get the picture? So they've liberated all of these slaves over here in Greece because they won the war. They've come and they've uh, you know, won the battle, and these people who had been taken captive in previous battles or war, because that, that's what happened, when you were defeated in the world at that time, you were taken into slavery. And so, they, they all of these are coming out. Now, for some reason, in this particular case, uh, the ge- Roman general didn't feel the freedom to just mandatorily release all of the slaves. I don't completely understand historically why that is, but... The Achaeans, the Greeks who were defeated, were obligated to give him a present of some kind. If if you'd been defeated by this general, you wanted them to treat you as well as they could, and so you gave them some big gift. Well, here's the gift. Look at what it says. But the Achaeans, that is the Greeks, ransomed them all at five as the man. In other words, the Greek leaders who had been defeated, they buy up all of these Roman citizens who were in slavery in Greece. They buy them from their masters. And they give them to the general, Titus. He made a present of them to Titus just as he was about to embark to go back to Rome so that he sailed for home with a glad heart. His noble deeds had brought him a noble recompense and one befitting a great man who loved his fellow citizens." This appears to have furnished his triumph, his triumphal procession parade with the most its most glorious feature. For these men shaved their heads and wore felt caps as it is customary for slaves to do when they are set free, and in this habit they followed the triumphal car of Titus. And we know in this case, I think there were tw- one account says there were 1200 of these people who now are liberated, they are set free from slavery, and they go back to Rome as free people. And what they would do is you shaved your head and you wore this little cap, the pileus, that showed that you had been a slave but now you were a free person. And so they are marching, imagine a thousand, two thousand people sometimes marching in the parade who had been in slavery and now they're liberated, they're set free. And they're marching, celebrating the victory of the general. Everybody understand the image? Do you understand the, what he's doing there? So, here's what I think is going on here, is you have a word picture that Paul's using. In the Roman imagery, you have the triumphator, the general. Uh, he is doing this in honor of the gods. Paul, uh, you have the incense bearers, and the incense bearers are kind of standing between those who are liberated, set free, and those who are captives, and their incense is wafting out over the whole crowd. Paul's using the imagery. Whoops. Sorry about that. Paul's using the imagery to say this is like ministry in the world, and this is where we want to move now to think through how how does this uh, inform us as a foundational image of what gospel ministry is really about. He says authentic ministry works its way through the world under the lordship of Christ for the sake of God and God's gospel, and you're living in a situation where you're living amongst people and proclaiming the gospel, some of whom are in the process of their, they're on their way to death. They're on their way to being destroyed. They're under the judgment of God. And you have other people who are the saved, and you're living in the midst of these people for whom the gospel smells sweet. And it's, it's a joyful thing. They are liberated by the gospel And authentic ministry means moving through the world with both of these kinds of people. All right? So I think that is the basic imagery. Now, what are the implications of this? Let me just ask you to think with me a minute. I know it's early, and I've got to go over here and get some coffee to kind of keep going here. But um, help me. Help me think about this. Think out loud with me for just a minute. If we understand the imagery in this way, that this is what authentic ministry is about... Is following God under the Lordship of Christ through the world in a context in which we are relating both to those who are being destroyed and those who are being saved. Why do you think Paul would use this as a foundational image, and what are some of the implications of this, just, just as a beginning place for the nature of authentic ministry? Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so one of the implications is we don't separate ourselves off from the world. We're living in the midst, right, of both those who are not believers and those who are believers, and that's that's part, that's part of it. Uh, let me ask you, and I'll ask for other implications, but do you ever feel tension in that? Um, you know, with our move to a new culture, I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, uh, one thing that Pat and I have talked about is when you are dropped down in the middle of a place where there are a lot of people who hold a different worldview from you, I mean, we are surrounded by secular people, by people who hold to other religions, uh, you know, that kind of thing. There, as you're trying to live out your worldview, and you're trying to live out the gospel, and actually enter into relationships where you are raising the gospel with people who hold a different worldview, there's a lot of tension in that. And you kind of see the tension in, in Paul's imagery here. It's like he's right in the middle, and he has two kinds of responses going on. You have those who are people who know they have been saved, and there's a joy in that. We, the church that we are uh, visiting and that we think we probably are going to end up joining, we haven't been there long enough to, to tell yet, but it's basically a church on the campus of the University of British Columbia. It was, in, it was initiated by students. And it's like sitting down in the middle of the United Nations. We have people who are Indian, Chinese, Thai. At least five different African nations are, are represented. Uh, you have a, a smattering of a couple Americans in there. And, you know, just all different kinds of people. And it's just joyful as we are worshiping Christ together, encouraging one another. It's just, you just get a taste and you think this is what, this is what being... And, you know, the eschaton is going to be like just to, to be among Christ's people and just to see the varied nature of the body of Christ. It's, it's wonderful. But then we go back to our townhouse, and we're surrounded by people who hold absolutely contrary worldviews to us, and we're trying to relate to them and love them, and they're inviting us in, and we're inviting them in, and that kind of thing. And, and there's a tension in that because some of them are lovely people in terms of just they're, they're kind, they're trying to reach out to us and that kind of thing. And yet inside, I know they, even if they know it or not, they are under the, the wrath of God. They need the gospel, both practically and just in terms of eternity. And there's a tension in me because I want them to understand the gospel. I'm trying to be discerning about how to unpack that with them. There's a certain amount of tension in that. Okay, so one of the implications of what he's saying here is we're kind of in the midst of a world where you have both kinds of people, and uh, that's one of the implications. What's another implication yeah yeah that's that's absolutely right. it's um, we we are to live lives of proclamation now in this room, we're going to have people who are gifted in various ways. Some of you are just gifted evangelists. I mean, it's just easy for you to talk about the gospel with people. For others of you, you really struggle with that. Your your personality is not just given to kind of being out there and being bold, and your gifting may be a little bit different. You may be a gifted teacher, but you struggle more with kind of answering questions of of non-believers. But we all, as the body of Christ, are to be gospel bearers in the world, to be open with people about who we are and, and what the gospel is all about. So one of the implications of, of authentic ministry is it, is it pressing into making the gospel known to people, uh, giving them a call to respond to the gospel of Christ in some way. That would be another implication. Somebody else over here? Somebody had one. Yep. Yeah, that's another implication. You know what? People are not always going to respond positively to our gospel presentation. And I don't know about you, but that, that's uncomfortable sometimes, that, that there will be some people in the world which will not be happy with us having the beliefs that we have. Uh, so sometimes when we are living faithfully, it feels like we're failing because people are not responding well. They're actually upset with us. It's causing tension and friction maybe in your family or in a workplace or something like that. And it feels like failure, but you know what? It's actually a mark that you're being who you should be because you're bearing the gospel in a way that, that people are not responding positively to. At points now, we don't need to go out and stir that up and be contrarian and all of that kind of thing. We want to try to build bridges and love people and make clear and do it sensitively. Paul, in other places, talks about you know uh, living out the gospel in a way that that you're at peace with people as much as you can be and all of that. But the fact is, at times, people aren't going to like what we believe. They're not going to like what we what we teach, and uh, that's another implication of the gospel. Over here and then back here. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, so the brother is saying that um, the way that the key is, the heart of it is, are we faithful, right? Is, is that what you were saying, that, that you know, it's, it's a mark of authentic ministry is even when things are very difficult and tough, there's a staying of the course in faithfulness as we follow Christ through the world. And uh, Eugene Peterson um, had a book titled uh, something like, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I I like that title a a lot. I actually didn't read the book, but I I thought the title was great. Uh, (laughs) A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, you know, that that we are are staying in there when things are hard, when things are good, all of that. And for some of you... uh, younger believers, I would just give you the word of encouragement that this is, when you face those rough patches that are really difficult, as I was saying yesterday, this is normal. This is normal Christianity. The thing that's been striking to me when I'm with the persecuted church in China or uh, with people who have been in pretty direct persecution in Israel, uh, like the Arab uh, Baptist pastor I know in Nazareth has has faced direct persecution of his children and um, of himself, is, is the amazing joy that they have in the midst of, of persecution. Because they've never known anything different, they just they have found the joy of Christ in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties. And uh, that's something that I want to grow in and learn more about, because my natural default setting from my American cultural context is that if things are bad, uh, that means something's off and not right and God needs to fix it. And sometimes if things are are off and difficult it's it's just because this is the natural outgrowth of you know following Christ faithfully in the world. Sometimes that's what's going on there. So we had had another one right back here. Did you have another or was it the same? Yeah, I was just um, wondering how that plays a for all these things. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great next step that, that we're moving to here in the passage. Paul raises the question, who is adequate for these things? Let me tell you what I think he's talking about. The word adequate there um, is a word that's going to show up again in 3, 4 through 6. Not that we are adequate or competent for these things. It was a word that could be used in the ancient world of someone who could do the job that needed to be done, for instance, who is competent, we could say, um, you know if if we get a resume from someone who's applying for a job, we're looking to see if that person can fit the bill if they can if they can uh, adequately do the job, competently do the job. So the word could be used in that sense. And that's somehow the way that Paul is using it here. I think what he's saying in this passage there in the second part of 16, and then then as he moves into 17, is he is saying, not me in and of it myself. You know, you're looking at, we are people who are standing uh, in the gap of eternity. In some ways, with the gospel, we are standing at the dividing line of eternity. And we're relating to people who are either being saved or who are being destroyed. It's kind of uh, C.S. Lewis's idea that you never met an or- ordinary human being. You know, you, you're meeting creatures who one day will be so glorious you would be tempted to bow down and worship them, or so devastatingly horrid that you would, you know, kind of run in fear. That's my paraphrase of Lewis, but, but he's saying that uh, that idea that that who is adequate to carry this message of the gospel into a world where it is the dividing line for eternity. And in essence, Paul's implied answer here is not me, apart from Christ, because that's what he's going to get to in 3, 4 through 6. Not that we are adequate or competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, our competence is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So, um, so that's, that's what I think he is saying there, is you look at the awesomeness of the gospel message, and who are we to, to be able to carry this message into the world, okay? Um, now, let's, yes, yeah. I was just wondering, what's the implication? It's great to know that the great victory has already been won by the general. Yeah. So, you're not called to win a victory or fight. Yeah. Yep. He's saying, so in a sense, we, we already share the victory of Christ. It's not that we're having to go out and win the battle. And I think that's, that's a good implication in a sense as well. Christ, Listen, is Christ really Lord of the universe? Yes, he is. Now, Hebrews says that it's a now and not yet reality that has not been consummated. All the enemies have not been put under his feet yet, so death still walks around the world. But the reality is, according to Psalm 8 that Christ already sits on the throne of the universe. He really is Lord. There's no doubt how this thing's going to turn out, right? So, and sister, you had something you wanted to add there. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, again, I mean, there are all kinds of... You can see the rich imagery that Paul is using here because what Paul is saying in essence is, My job in life is to bow my knee before Christ and follow him through the world where he leads me to go in carrying out this gospel. Do you see how that kind of flows from his answer to them why he didn't come back to Corinth? Because God had opened this door for ministry, and Paul had to follow that because, and so he just says, Thanks be to God who leads us in his triumphal parade in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, So you and I are to be people who are following Christ under the lordship of Christ in the world to the glory of God, just wafting out on people. We're to be gospel people who are living out the gospel in such a way that God brings them to himself through that, the beauty of the gospel. And sometimes, yes, there are going to be people who are not going to respond well to it, but there's a, a powerful beauty there. Uh, when that kind of authentic ministry is really what is going on. So, at the heart of authentic ministry is this gospel impulse to want to carry the gospel out to people in the world. Does that make some sense of the imagery that we have here in the triumphal procession? Let me see what questions you have about that, and then we're going to look at verse 17, which is a very rich uh, verse here. And then I guess we are we due to take a break here, Michael? Is that in terms of our time? Okay, Michael's going to check on that. But let's see if we have questions about this imagery because it is foundational.
0: I don't know if she's telling me about the break or she has a question. Yeah, a short, a short break. Let, let me throw in one question while people are getting their thoughts together. So, Doug Mu talks about, in Paul and in the New Testament as a whole, that often salvation is viewed from an aspect of the consummated Mm -hmm. future reality. And I guess in more popular church speak, people talk about like the tenses of salvation, like we are saved, we're being saved, we shall be saved. Can you maybe just make a comment in light of perseverance and when you get to chapter 13 and all of that about the people who are being saved and the people (laughs) perishing?
1: And you want me to do this in two minutes before we take a break? An
0: hour. Uh, uh. Okay, I'll I'll say
1: uh, one word about this. We were actually I was talking with someone right before uh, the session about this. We, boy, let me think about how we need to unpack this. Um, one thing that is going on in the New Testament, you know, you you have the big question of okay, are you a Calvinist? Or are you an Arminian? You know, do you believe people can lose their salvation? Is do you believe in perseverance of the saints? What we tend to do, and I'm not saying that this is wrong, but we tend to try to approach these things from a systematic theology standpoint. And I believe in systematic theology. I believe that we should study the Scripture broadly and try to put together, make sense of how all of this fits together. That's what systematic theology does, and it looks at how the church has dealt with these things down through the ages. So uh, those, are, those are good questions to ask. They're important questions to ask, but at times we come to passages like Hebrews 6, for instance. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from people from around the world because I've written a lot on Hebrews, and they write me an email and they say, I think I might have committed the unpardonable sin. Can you please tell me, is Hebrews 6 talking about me? I'm serious. I have one guy who's written me over the last couple of years multiple, multiple times, and I've tried to help him find assurance and, and that kind of thing, and it's just agonizing for him because he thinks that he may have, you know, turned away from the Lord to a point where he is now rejected by God. And I, and the first thing I would say if a person's in that, in that place is, pastorally speaking, if that's where you are, where you are longing to, to be God's person, you are longing for, for Christ's salvation and all that, that's not who Hebrews 6 is talking about. And what happens with a lot of these passages is... Uh, just if I can put it simply, Hebrews is looking out over a congregation of some people who are keen Christians. They're right there. They're, they're living for Christ. They're, they're following the Lord in ministry. And then he sees somebody over on the edge of the room, they have one foot out the door of the church. And it's just really a big question mark what's going to happen with them because they're, they're doubting and they're considering turning their back on Christ and the church and going back to Judaism, for instance, uh, mainline Judaism. Um, and so he's pastorally trying to deal with all of these people. And so part of what Hebrews 6 is doing is it's giving these really strong, challenging warnings to pull people back in who are out there on the edge and seem to be kind of drifting away. It's trying to pull them back in. Hebrews 6 is not doing theology in that sense. It has an underlying theology that is there, but it's primarily trying to give exhortation to a point so that where someone is getting off track, you are calling them back to Christ and the gospel uh, so let me give you one example, just practically, and pastor, and then I'll answer your question. I'm not really answering your question, am I? I'm avoiding your question at the moment. Uh, okay. All right. So let me answer this real quickly, and then we'll take a break. Um, I had, I've had students come to me through the years who are in that place where they are um, struggling with, you know, maybe whether they have drifted away from Christ to point. And how do I deal with a person like that? says, I want to be Christ's person. I want to be faithful to God. I want to follow him then I I say to them that the passage like Hebrews 6 is is not addressing you. And what I want to exhort you to do is to believe the gospel right now. Whether you were, you know, baptized 15 years ago or something, you're trying to reach back and say, was I sincere when I was baptized? You know, that kind of thing. That's not the point. Who are you trusting right now for your salvation? Uh, Do you have any hope in yourself for your salvation before God? no. Do you, who do you trust? I only trust Christ for my salvation. Well, then believe the gospel, stand on the gospel, and have faith in Christ and rejoice in Christ, you know, and, and so that's simplistic, but that's kind of the way we start. Have another guy who I, I had in a class 15 years ago or so, who was at our university, who was living like the devil. He didn't care about the things of God. He was a major in religion, but he had fallen away, drifted away, he was, he was just... Uh, Not in a good place. He didn't care about the things we were talking about in class. And I was sitting with him because he was my advisee. And I said to him, I looked him in the face and I said, You know, uh, John, I forget his name, but I said, John, you know, probably what's going on in your life right now, at least possibly what's going on, is you are manifesting that you don't know Christ and you are on your way to hell. You, you you just may be manifesting that in your life right now. You need to take this really seriously. You don't need to place hope in the fact that you entered the church as a young child and you've been baptized so you know you're okay with God. No, you're not okay with God. You're manifesting that you may not know Christ and you are on your way to hell. And you need to repent and turn to Christ and believe the gospel. Now, I, I'm not dealing with those in the sense of, well, did they lose their... You know, You can't tell that. You can't look into the person's heart and tell the reality that's going on. I personally, my theology, believes in the idea of perseverance, that once saved, always saved, if saved. If you really are Christ and Christ's person, it's going to manifest in perseverance. But we don't have to get into all of that at this point. Salvation in the New Testament does have a past, a present, and the future. The way J.I. Packer says it, in the past, I was saved from the penalty of sin. In the presence, I am being saved from the power of sin as the Spirit of God works in me. In the future, I will be saved from the presence of sin. And and in the New Testament, that's that's a pretty good layout of the way salvation works. Salvation is not just something that happened to you in the past. It's something that is happening to you now and will happen to you in the future. It's a package deal. It's a package deal. Can I say that I was saved when I was six, when I was six years old? Yes, I can say that. That I, The New Testament uses that language, when you were saved. But it also uses the language of Christ will bring my salvation with him at the end of the age, Hebrews 9.28. So it is a package deal. And part of that is the idea of perseverance. We persevere all the way to the end, right? And keep hoping in Christ and looking to Christ. Part of what's going on in those New Testament passages is you can't look into a person's heart and say exactly what's going on. That means that even if a person who's come into the church in the past and been baptized and looked like a king Christian, if they are living like the devil, living in adultery, doing all these kind of things, you have no right to give them assurance of their salvation. Because assurance of salvation in the New Testament is by perseverance, by hanging in there and faithfully following Christ. Does that mean that that person who has turned their back on Christ and has drifted away and doesn't mean there's no hope for them that you can actually say that they, they don't know Christ. You don't know that. They may be like wheat and tares. And so you pray and you preach the gospel to them and you hope that they repent and come back to a full-on commitment to the gospel. But you have no right to give that person assurance when they are not faithfully following Christ. Does that make any sense? Okay, so that's, that's a beginning answer. We need to take a break, and that, that's a—I'm sorry— I probably didn't answer the question, but that's, you know, that's what you do. (laughs) All right, so let's take a break. For how long are we taking a break? Oh, five minutes. Okay, we're taking a five-minute break, and we'll come back and uh, carry on.